you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open it to Jonah chapter 3 as we continue our study in this uh, tremendous uh, uh, story, this, this, this great book that the Lord has provided for us. I'll confess in this, I'm looking forward to this, uh, this message more than I did the first service, because in the first service when I opened my pad, I realized I uploaded the wrong message. Um, and so... Of course, now having confessed that to you, I didn't want to make an excuse in the first service, but you know, if it doesn't go any better, I got no excuses at all. So uh, anyway. Jonah chapter 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Beginning our reading in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast, and put on sackcloth, and from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is uh, in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning, we pray that you would be at work in accordance with your promise, that your word will never come back empty. We pray that it would not only give us an understanding of what you have done in history, but that you would open our, our eyes to see what you are like, and that you who are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that you would help us to understand what you want for us you want and what uh, you would have us to do. Lord, speak to us, we pray, that your word may shape, encourage, and reshape again until we all reach full maturity in Christ Jesus. We pray this with great confidence and great hope in Christ who is himself, the word incarnated. Amen. It's February 1970. The Beatles have just released an album, Beatles Again, which would later be retitled Hey Jude. On this album, nine songs would reach number one in both the UK and in the United States. Now, on the album, there's also one song that never reached number one in either of those countries, but it still made it to the Beatles' greatest hits album a few years later. And that song begins with John Lennon letting out a loud scream, screech, and then just declaring, you say you want a revolution? Well, you know we all want to change the world. Well, it's been 50 plus years since John Lennon screamed those words. 
how did the revolution work? Over the past couple of weeks, I've looked at a number of different articles that I found online that were comparing what it was like in the 70s as to what it was like today and which of them was better, whether it was better then or whether it is better now. And, and it was one that I found that was uh, simply titled 28 Points of Comparison Between the 1970s and Today, Which Do You Think is Better? Uh, by an author I'm not familiar with, but his name is Michael Snyder. I'm not going to give all 28 points, but I will just give a couple of the points just to kind of get us thinking and getting us started. He said, in the 1970s, we had Richard Nixon and Jimmy Carter. Today, we have Donald Trump and Joe Biden. So it's probably a wash. In the 1970s, we had disco. Today, this was written a few years ago, we have Justin Bieber and Katy Perry. Probably. In the 1970s, we had rotary phones. Today, we have iPhones. So probably a plug for today, except when you don't want to be reached. Um, in the 1970s, many Americans regularly left their cars and their front doors and their homes unlocked at night. Today, many Americans live with steel bars on their windows and gun sales are at a record high. Consumer debt in the United States has risen a whopping 1,700% since 1971. And today, 46% of all Americans carry a credit card balance from month to month. In the 1970s, gum chewing and talking in class were the major disciplinary problems in our schools. Today, many of our public schools have been equipped with metal detectors because the violence has become so prolific. These are just a few. Some of them are silly. Some of them are, are, are more sobering. But I, I think that it is safe to say this, is that there are some things that are better today than they were yesterday. There are other things that were better in the past than they are today. Many of the things are different, but, you know, we're no better off as a society or as a people. And the reason for that is because we are no better people uh, than we were to begin with. And because we're all broken, because we're all corrupted, we're going to see that show up in our world one way or the other. And so whether you believe that it was better yesterday than it is today, or you prefer that you're happier that you're living today the way things are today as opposed to living in the past, I do think one thing is clear. Whatever it is that he meant, John Lennon's revolution didn't work because we're not really any better off than we were before. Now, it's interesting, as I look at Jonah, uh, the book of Jonah is really a, a story about radical transformation. Now, we see it in a personal transformation in the person of Jonah, and particularly we saw that transformation taking place uh, as we looked at the passage, passage in, in Jonah chapter 2. We saw the transformation of Jonah, who was a prophet, who knew God, had served God faithfully, and then whatever was going on in his life and in his heart, he ran from God, and he ran from the mission that God was sending him on, only for God to capture him and put him, uh, and, and to restore him in a very unpleasant but a very uh, profound way by being swallowed whole and living for three days in the belly of a whale or of a great fish. And we see the transformation taking place in Jonah when he is in the middle, uh, when he is in that fish and under the sea. And I think, for me, the most profound verse in this entire book is found when Jonah says in chapter 2, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit a grace that could be theirs. 
And Jonah wasn't just talking about the, the, the pagan nations of the world who were making and clinging to the idols there, and, but he was recognizing this even in himself. He's recognizing something that's true of him, it's true for you, it's true for me, is that we all have idols and we have this tendency to cling to them. And when we cling to those idols, then we forfeit a grace that could be theirs. Now, for the nations that are clinging to idols and rejecting the, the one true God, they forfeit a grace that could be theirs in terms of salvation and a, a relationship with God and all of the promises that are that belong to those who belong to God. But even for those who belong to God, even those who know God, that have served God, as we cling to the different idols, it doesn't cost us our salvation, but we forfeit a grace that could be ours, the grace of peace, uh, the grace of joy that as part of God's promise to us, that we can have those things even in the midst of difficulties and hardships in the world. But when we cling to worthless idols, we forfeit those things. And Jonah was recognizing that about himself. And so when he became aware of himself, at the same time we see him giving thoughts about God, all this is taking place. He's, he's contemplating God. He thinks not only of his own brokenness and the things that have caused him to be distant from God, but he also thinks of the temple and the place of sacrifice and the sacrifices that are offered that bring forgiveness of sins and the reconciliation with God, that he can have that Jonah. We see that transformation taking place in him, and it's a radical transformation. And I say radical not just to be an adjective, but the word radical literally means getting to the root. And all transformation, all genuine transformation, is a radical transformation. It takes place in the root in the heart, and then works its way outward. It is not primarily something that refines us and you know, and um, you know, brushes off the rough edges so that we behave simply different. Real transformation takes place on the inside and works itself outward, and we see that taking place in Jonah. Something else we see in Jonah is this, and particularly as we look into Jonah chapter three, we see another kind of a transformation. It's the kind of transformation that John Lennon was dreaming about. It's the kind of transformation that many of us pray about, some hopefully, and many just because we just wish things were different, but we may be praying uh, hopelessly or just, just because we know that we need to do it. What we see in Jonah chapter 3 is a, is a societal transformation taking place. We see that the message that Jonah goes and proclaims, the people heard it. And they heard the message, and so many people heard the message that the message even made its way up to the king, and then the king heard it. And the people's response, we're told, they believed God and they turned, they wanted to turn from their evil ways. They, there was a transformation that was taking place. It began in the, and within them, they recognized there was something wrong with them. Now, they became aware because of the threat that came from God, but they looked at themselves and realized it's not just, we we need to do something about ourselves with the hope that they would somehow be pardoned. But there was a societal transformation that, that, that was taking place right before our eyes in, in the pages here, in these verses here in Jonah chapter 3. The question that should come to our minds is how does something like that happen? Now, certainly it's a, it's a revival, and so it's a work of God, and we'll get to that in a moment, but it's what we're praying for, it's what we're longing for, it's what John Lennon was singing about, right? They wanted to see some sort of revolution that was going to transform the way that life was to be lived. How does that happen? And I want to suggest to you that in Jonah chapter 3, we see an outline of how God works and how he intends to work throughout this world. 
I think we need to begin with this, is for any radical transformation to take place, we need to recognize that, that the, it is rooted in the nature of God himself. I appreciate the way that uh, theologian John Stott put it a generation ago, and he said, our God is a missionary God. It is his nature. And we see that not just because Jesus came and then gave the Great Commission before he ascended into heaven, but we see it permeating all of the scriptures, and particularly as he founded a people, Israel. He called from all of the tribes, all the peoples of the nations, and he called Abraham and said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Through you, I'm going to bless the entire earth. I'm going to bless you to make you a blessing to the nations. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. God was calling somebody to himself in order that through him, he would build a people that would belong to God and that God would relate to them in a way that was different from the way that the other nations other peoples around them related to their own gods. And so as you look through some of the laws that God had put in place to be practiced and recognized by Israel, it was in many cases to be very distinct, to show very distinctly that my people, these people are different than the people that live next door so that it would be obvious to the nations when the people were faithful, that God was faithful to them that it was different, it was intended to provoke them to jealousy, to want to know about this true God, so that they too would come and inquire and then be reconciled to God, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the, the King of kings. And so from the very beginning, God has even created a people for that very purpose of mission, because he was not just a God of this people that he was creating. He is the God of all and he was going to, this was his plan. This was the way that he was going to call people. It is in his very nature to bring about change. He is a missionary God. But the transformation is also then executed. Genuine radical transformation is to be executed by God's strategy, conducted according to his design. And we see that design reiterated here in God's relationship with Jonah. It's really fascinating if you think about it. Jonah just comes through this uh, difficult experience and the first thing God says is, again, go. He's sending him back on mission. It, it's, it, it would be very easy and you know we would tend to think God would look at Jonah and say, okay, this whole thing was because you, your heart was more broken than you knew. You were far from me, even though you know you were going through the motions. You you know, but you had things that you needed to see. So I put the I put this call on you, and then you ran, and you know everything happened, and then you had that unpleasant experience inside the fish. So you know, go take some R and R. Take six months off. Get rested. See if you can do something about that ugly bleached skin. Um, you know, and. Uh, it's not what he says. As soon as Jonah spit up onto the dry land, the Lord says again, go, go to that great city of Nineveh and declare to them the message that I give to you. He sends Jonah on mission. It's rooted into his nature, but it's also the strategy that God has in order to bring transformation. Now, if nothing else, what we recognize from Jonah chapter three is this, is that mission is not only for the well-rested. Jonah hadn't yet recovered. Mission is not only for people with extra time on their hands. Mission is not only for the wealthy who can afford it, nor is it only for the poor who have nothing much to lose. Mission is not for extroverts or those who have the gift of gab. Mission is not for those only with theological educations. 
Mission is not for the spiritual elite. Mission is for everybody who says, I belong to God. I particularly appreciate the way that the Luzon Covenant expresses it. Uh, Luzon Covenant is the, the written document from the Luzon World Evangelism Congress from 1974. And Article 6 of that covenant says this, We affirm that Christ sends his redeemed people into the world as the Father sent him. And he's making reference to Jesus' statement in, in, uh, in John chapter 20. He says, Just as the Father sent me from heaven here, so I'm sending you. And so Jesus is commissioning his disciples there. We affirm that Christ sends his redeemed people into the world as the Father sent him, and that this calls for a similar deep and costly penetration of the world. We need to break out of our ecclesiastical ghettos and permeate non-Christian society. In the church's mission of sacrificial service and evangelism, it is primary. World evangelization requires the whole church to take the whole gospel to the whole world. Let me say that again. World evangelization, which is the key to the transformation that we are longing for, world evangelization requires the whole church to take the whole gospel to the whole world. The whole church means not just the few that we send out, but the whole church, everybody is involved in mission. And they go on and they said this, the church is the community of God's people rather than an institution. And it must not be identified with any particular culture, social or political system or human ideology. In other words, they're saying the same thing for the present context, that, that God had created the people through Abraham to be his own and the, the Jewish people, Israel, of whom the church is now rooted in, or the roots, that's the roots the church has been grafted in and is, is part of God's covenant people. The difference is that the church now is not an ethnicity, but includes people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Nobody is excluded on the basis of where their background is or what religion they may have grown up in, but anybody who is trusting in God's provision through Jesus Christ is able to be part of the church. But the church now has the same responsibilities that the eternal covenant made with Abram, which is to help the nations and the people of the nations to recognize that there is a God in the way that God calls us to live and the way that God has provided that we may be reconciled to him. And there's nobody that's exempt. See, God, who is by nature a missionary God, has a strategy that he is intending to send his people in order to be the transformational agents. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. And so the purpose of God's people is to be those agents of change. And we see it elsewhere, including in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 29, a great example. Israel had been scattered because of their unfaithfulness to the covenant. And God scatters them. It's kind of, it seems like the punishment that is going to undo them. This nation now no longer exists. The people who are part of the nation, the people who are the part of God, now they're, they're scattered. And many of them end up in, in particular areas, particularly because part of the way they were scattered is they were brought into uh, slavery and uh, into bondage into to Babylon. And so many of them lived there. And even when they were more free, they were living there. And, and so now you have a, a faith community, people who belong to God, people who are wanting to be renewed in that relationship with God, people who are wanting to honor God and yet live their lives in a culture that does not share their values. In fact, in many ways, would be hostile to their values. And they want to know, how is it that we're supposed to live? Because, you know, we no longer have the, the laws set up according to God, but, you know, we have these laws that are not consistent. And as they're wondering how they should live, in Jeremiah 29, 7, 
People are familiar with Jeremiah 29, 11. They quote it all the time. I know the plans for I have for you, plans to prosper you. You know, we like that prosperity thing. But it doesn't answer the question as to, well, how are we going to live in order to see the prosperity? But in Jeremiah 29, 7, the Lord actually tells them, and essentially he tells them this, here's what you're supposed to do, living in this culture that is different and hostile to your values. Go plant gardens. Now, let your sons and daughters get married and have kids. Marrying would be consistent with the tradition and law to marry within in the faith. And, and so, but <laughs> seek the prosperity of the city where I planted you, where I put you in exile. Or if it goes well for the city, it will be better for you. And what the Lord is describing is the fact that he has intended, as part of his strategy, he is sovereign over all things. These people thought, in one sense, had been forsaken by God because they were disciplined, they were sent into exile, so they felt like they couldn't do anything, and God said, no, 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 no. You know, you actually were not faithful not only to me, but you weren't faithful to the plan to begin with. You weren't engaging in, in bringing the nations to, to, to know me, so I'm sending you to the nations, and I planted you there. Now, go about your ordinary life. If you go about your ordinary life, and if you love your neighbor and seek to bless your neighbor, then people will see that there's a difference in the way that you live because you live according to the standards that I have set for you, and they will come to know you, and that will be blessed. God's plan, even at that point, was to use the whole church, the whole people, in order to bless the places where he had sovereignly placed them. It's said that God is like a spiritual tornado. I don't know if you're interested in tornadoes or not, or if you just fear them. I, I went to high school my freshman and sophomore year of high school was in Oklahoma. I lived in a small in a town that was uh, then a growing town, grown quite a bit just outside of Tulsa. And so it was a culture shock to me when we had our first tornado drill in school. I mean, growing up in suburban Philadelphia, we had fire drills like everybody has everywhere. Now I go to this brand new school, already trying to adjust to culture, and then all of a sudden this weird siren sounds and everybody seems to know what's doing. I don't know what I'm doing told us a tornado drill. And so we would have tornado drills once a month where people would go into the hallway where there were no windows and they would, you know, sit down and, you know, quiet and, and of course, whenever a tornado warning was coming. There was one day that there was a tornado that actually came. Unfortunately for me, at least as I saw it at that point, as the school, knowing that there's a tornado alley, designed half of the classrooms to be on the inside walls that had no windows whatsoever. And since I had a teacher, I was in one of those classrooms, and I had a teacher who thought, well, we're in no danger and continue the class. Well, everybody else was out in the hall. I still have nightmares about that. Um, but, uh, but I developed a fascination with tornadoes. Tornadoes are incredibly powerful, and in that sense, we can see just a, just a, a touch of the power of God. Because tornadoes have the capability of wiping out and sucking up everything within their path. And some tornadoes are even as much as a mile wide. And a mile wide, they just go down and just sucking up and spitting out everything that comes into their path. Just incredible, incredible power. It has the ability to destroy. And what is also amazing about tornadoes is as they spit things out, it just, it, 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 sometimes it's bizarre. I remember reading of one tornado where it picked a house up off of its foundation and planted it right across the street in a field, completely intact. I read of another tornado that came by. It wasn't a large tornado, it was a smaller tornado, and it picked up uh, a, a, a litter of kittens from the front porch of a house only to find them up the road still alive and intact. And meanwhile, there were houses that were leveled. Just incredible power 
But when it's said that God is like a spiritual tornado, this is what we need to understand, is God who has all power, he never sucks in without intending to also send back out. And so every person that God has brought in, every person he's granted the ability to repent and believe, he brings them in. We are forgiven. We are pardoned. We are made parts of the family. And so we are brought in at the same time. There is nobody who is exempt from being sent out to being God's agents in the culture, wherever it is that he plants us. Some of us, it's in certain areas that we're familiar with. Others are picked up and given a desire to go throughout the world. Sometimes it's involuntary. Sometimes it's a sense of calm. But God brings us in for the purpose of sending us out wherever it is we're planted to bless the people who are around us. And in that sense, God is like a spiritual tornado. He brings us in and he sends us out. He never brings anybody in without the intent of sending us back out. That's what Genesis 12 tells us. One of a friend of mine calls the, the top line and the bottom line of the covenant. The top line, the one that we like is, I'm going to bless you. And we all like that. The bottom line is, you go and be a blessing to the other people. We see even it reiterated, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 1 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In other words, he brings us comfort, he brings us in, but for the purpose of sending us out and being his agents of transformation. The comfort is usually a one-on-one, that we comfort those who are in need. But the bigger picture of it is the church as a whole is his agent of transformation in the world, that people would come and see the faithfulness and the greatness as well as the glory of our God, and see the way that he relates to us, despite us ourselves sometimes, and be curious about that so that they may hear the full message of the gospel, which is what Jonah was dealing with, the recognition of their own brokenness and their own need in the ways that we don't measure up to the holiness of God. And yet what God has done to provide a sacrifice that is acceptable to him in our place that we can be reconciled, pardoned, forgiven, and made part of the whole. God's strategy is to use you and to use me and to use his people, whoever they are, in order to be a blessing to the communities where he places them. But we also need to recognize that transformation is not only rooted in the character of God, and it's not only conducted by the design of God, it's always accomplished by the power of God and only accomplished by the power of God. I mean, it's an amazing scene that we have here in Jonah chapter 3. Jonah goes into the city, and he must have been quite a sight. Some scholars, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, said that one of the reasons people might have been preconditioned to listen to what he had to say is that in this culture where most people were brown skin and dark skin, he's now bleached white. An albino showing up, you know, and people probably would take notice. And as he goes in, and I got to admit that I have this maybe from, you know, hearing the story, I have a kind of a character truncated view of what probably took place there. See, in my head, the way that I tend to think of the story is Jonah just kind of walked in, just kind of shouted out, y'all are toast, and then went about his business and, you know, whatever else. And that's not what the passage indicates, and that's not likely what happened to begin with. There's some descriptive language that we have here uh, of Nineveh in, in this passage, and one of the things, it talks about how great of a city, how significant of a city it is, and it talks about being three days' journey in breadth. 
Now, both archaeologists and, and Bible scholars have say, well, it's probably not so large that it takes three days to walk across. The average person was able to walk 20 miles in a day. That would have made the city 60 miles wide. There's no cities today that around that are 60 miles wide, much less back in antiquity that they would have been that large. Now, some others have said, well, that wouldn't just be the city limits within the wall. That would have been, you know, the, the greater Nineveh area including the suburbs, whatever those would be, but even that wouldn't have probably been. More likely is that, uh, according to Hebrew time, which includes the day of arrival, the day of business, and, and a day of departure, uh, that that would have been the three days. It took three days to conduct the business that he had to do to be able to sufficiently declare the message that he had to declare. But also what I, I have come to understand is, is this, is that Nineveh was a city of war. We, we kind of know that. And it was a city that was behind walls. So it's not likely that somebody is going to be able to just kind of walk into town and start declaring on the street corner like somebody does down in, in CW, you know, whatever messages that they want to preach. The chances are he would have had to enter into one of the two gates into the city. And then he would have been noticed because of his albino appearance, having been bleached by the stomach acids inside the whale. And then he would have probably been introduced to whatever officials there were, to what are you doing here and what's your business? And he would have talked with them and had the conversations, get the necessary approvals and permits and whatever was necessary in that day. Uh, because these were very competent and very militaristic, and you, you, they were not going to be as effective as they were, evil as it was, militarily, if they also were not conscious of their need for defending their own place. And so the first day was probably consumed with a lot of meetings and Jonah over and over and over again telling some of the officials and people who were chartered with that, here's the reason I'm here. And whatever it was that he said, then he got the permissions and he went out. Maybe he preached part of that day, preached the next day, and then the last day before he left, he continued part of that. But it's a significant city and he goes and he preaches this message. And then even the message itself, my, you know, there's, there's, I have this tendency to recognize, you know, again, Jonah goes in just as y'all were toast and he was done. It doesn't take three days to say that. The book itself is written in very broad and very general terms. And so the fact that this is the only part of the message that Jonah gives to us does not indicate that that's the only message he gave. Chances are he said more than he said there. And he may very well have pointed to his own experience and that there's a mercy in God. But I do believe that since Jonah is saying, recording for us that this is the only thing that he said, that the, the gist of his message, what people would have remembered, what would have stuck with them was a message of, you all stink. You all are a mess and you're all in trouble. And that's the only thing. And it was not a message of hope. It was a message of judgment. And, and so that's the message primarily that Jonah was emphasizing. And it's not the whole gospel, but that was the message that he gave them, an entirely inadequate message. So how did Jonah see such transformation take place in what some would believe is the greatest revival that ever took place in history? How did he make it happen? And the answer is, Jonah didn't make it happen. God made it happen. So God takes those of us who are inadequate. He takes us in our own brokenness, and we are not yet complete. And even though we may stumble over our words, or we may, you know, our, our attitudes, or our mindset, or our situation may even muffle what it is that we intend to say, God is the one who is at work and making effective the message that is being proclaimed and preparing the hearts of the people in order to receive it. 
whenever a radical transformation really takes place, it's because God has been at work, not because of the effectiveness of the message and the messenger. And that's very important for us because many of us would probably think, well, I can't do that. I don't have the words. I don't have the education. I don't have the time. I don't want... He said, Jonah, you can at least be as good as Jonah, who is broken, not yet fully fixed, and goes and sends a message that I don't like you people, but I'm here because God made me come anyway. If you can do at least that, you can be used. God doesn't need your gifts. God doesn't need your talents. If God needs anything, and he doesn't need anything, the only thing that God says that he needs in order to make you usable is your willingness to be used. And God uses circumstances, such as he did with Jonah, to bring about the willingness in order to bring that transformation. Circumstances make us sensitive, transformation takes place, but it's God who is at work within the heart. And, And we see that, and we see here that the people in Nineveh repented. Because the thing that we need to recognize and thoroughly understand is this, that the power that God brings for transformation, the power of God for transformation always includes repentance, and transformation only occurs with repentance. That's been true throughout history. Wherever there's been a great revival, it has because God has brought people to repentance, and in their repentance, they clung to the hope that the message that they've had. Some of you are probably aware of the revivals that were reported that took place uh, earlier this spring in Asbury, at Asbury College, uh, University, whatever they are now, Asbury, Kentucky. And, and a lot of people were very excited about that, and some people sounded a little bit more skeptical. Now, some of the people that are more skeptical, and particularly in reform circles and reform social media, it's because they just have no life. They need to get a life, and they, they're never happy about anything. Um, but others got lumped in with them because they said, okay, I'm glad to see people are happy, but is it a real revival? And the reason they were asking that question is it was accompanied with this question. Is there any repentance? Because that part wasn't getting reported. And so if there's no repentance, it's not a genuine revival. It might be a nice thing, but sometimes it can become more like a corporate um, counseling session. And in our therapeutic culture, people recognize their brokenness. They want to be told you're okay and everything is okay and God is love and God is healing. And all of those messages are true, but they're not the whole truth. And what was being reported is people were coming and they were, you know, conf- I don't know if confessing, but they were, they were hearing the message of, of, of the forgiveness of God, which is important. But the question was, is there repentance? Because without repentance, there is no real Radical transformation, nothing changes in. And I don't know the answer to that, so I don't know whether that was truly a revival or if it was a forerunner of revival or if it was just, you know, whatever, and and it really doesn't matter. But it was, the conversation was illustration of, of the importance. Whenever God is at work, he brings about repentance. And we see that even here in Nineveh. It's really is a fascinating, in one sense, you look at it and think, is that really repentance? I mean, there's the parts of it that are impressive, Everybody sackcloth and ashes, and um, you know, and, and it almost seems comical. Not just the people, but the animals. But I don't think it's intended to be comical. It's intended to say, we recognize this is serious. And we need to change our evil ways in hopes that maybe, maybe God will forgive. And it's kind of like, is, is that it? And I want to suggest to you, that's a great repentance. It's not all there is, but that's all these people had. 
So when repentance takes place, there is a transformation. Transformation takes place because there's a change in our, our, our perspective about ourselves and about God. They didn't have a lot of information about God. And so they were just saying, okay, this God that we've heard about, this God who wiped out Egypt uh, years and years ago, he's now angry with us. So they respected and they, they feared this God that Jonah must have talked about some and that they had seen uh, demonstrated even when they had gone and attacked um, Israel. And so they believed what they were told about them. They, they had this awe and respect of this one true God. And they knew that this God had a standard by which people are to live. And they knew they had, so they made that transformation. That's a great repentance. And unfortunately, far too often in Christian circles today, our repentance looks far more like Israel's did in, in Hosea chapter six, where the people said this, we're tired of suffering. So let's return to the God. God's, God is gracious, he'll forgive us. So they went through the rituals and they repented, so they said, and God didn't accept it. Why not? Because there was no real repentance. It wasn't about God. You see, what the, the, the people in Nineveh had done is they recognized there's a God who is holy, and they had offended the holiness of God. And therefore, even if they didn't fully understand that, they needed to change from that in hopes, not even in promise, in hopes that they, God wouldn't wipe them out. Israel and too many Christians we don't even give thought to whether or not we have offended God. We're just tired of suffering. So we go through some religious motions, stop doing whatever we're doing, at least for a time, and then expecting things to go well. And, and we wonder why there's so much anxiety and so much hopelessness, even within the church, is because we're not calling people to repentance, and we don't even necessarily know what it is. But the people in Nineveh, as little as they knew, they had repented and were told that the Lord relented from what he had promised. Now you and I have a better promise. They repented on the basis of the hope that maybe nothing would happen. Whereas Israel had much more, as Jonah was thinking about, even when he recognized his own brokenness, he looked to the temple, the place where the sacrifice was offered, where through the sacrifice being offered, and when it was accepted, sins were forgiven, pardon, reconciliation with God. And you and I are called to look to the cross with the assurance that we would be pardoned. But we're still called to repent. And so we see several things here at work, and I'm going to wrap this up here, but John Lennon was right. We all long for revolution. We all want the world to be different and better than it is. The question is, how is that going to happen? And I think that the outline here in Jonah is indicative of the way God has worked throughout of all of history. Is change for the better is rooted in the very nature and the character of God. If God is not good, then it really doesn't matter. If things change, it would only get worse. But God is good. So rooted in his character, God has initiated a plan and he's going to call a people, broken people, people who are not any better than the people who are around them, and gather them together and to begin a transformation within those people and then call them together as a community that they can encourage one another to continue in that process of transformation. And then even as he's changing his people, he's sending them out in order that they would be the agents of change within whatever communities that they are in. 
And so far as God's people are faithful and where they are, there is change. They're at least a contrast. There is an alternative and people are able to see the clear difference. And when true change takes place, it's because God is at work. We all want that. And that's probably what drives the political action and the social justice movements that we have in our culture today. But let me ask you this. When you think of the world that you want, the culture that you want, that's different and better, what does it look like? How do you know whether or not it's a radical transformation or just a superficial, temporary transformation? What would the culture look like? What would the culture look like if Jesus actually reigned? And I ask that question because I'm going to ask, give you an example of something that may shock you. There's almost the exact opposite. A number of years ago, a man named Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was the pastor at the time of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, um, he had a national radio broadcast every single year, every single week they would broadcast uh, his sermons or uh, talk that he would give. And one of the messages that got broadcast across the country, uh, Barnhouse picked up this subject and asked this question, what would, things look like, what would things look like if Satan took control of the city? So what I'm asking our hope is, I hope our hope is, what if Jesus is reigning? What would it look like if Satan took over and was reigning the city? And some of you may think, oh, he already is, but listen to what Barnhouse suggested. It's not scripture, but he has a significant profound point. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, all of the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not proclaimed. It's again, it's not scripture, but he has the point here because one of those spiritual battles that people, that we tend not to understand is we think that the primary purpose of God is our comfort. And then everything in this description is what most of us think about when we want the whole world to be changed. There's nothing wrong with those things. But that's the superficial transformation. Radical transformation comes at the heart. Radical transformation takes place when Christ is at work within his people, when the whole gospel is at work within all of the people. And then those people are scattered out into the whole world. And it's a very important thing that we recognize that that is totally different than the activism that too many churches on both the right and the left are engaging in instead of the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ to this world. And thinking that that's going to bring the transformation that we long for. I'm going to wrap it up with a couple of words from a theologian who I appreciate, a man named uh, Michael Horton. Listen to what he says. Horton says this, if we think the main mission of the church is to improve life in Adam and add a little moral strength to this fading evil age, we have not yet understood the radical condition for which Christ is such a radical solution. And he goes on and says this, the power of our activism, campaigns, movements, and strategies cannot forgive sins and cannot raise the dead. But Jesus can. And Jesus does because he has. And we need to be a people that are very clear. We want the revolution. We want things to change. How is it going to happen? Do not exchange your calling as the people of God and as the church 
to take the mission, the whole gospel to the whole world, where radical transformation takes place within hearts that changes societies and changes the world, and exchange that for political action that might put laws in place, but is not going to change the hearts. It's not going to bring a radical transformation. It cannot. It cannot raise the dead. It cannot pardon sin, even if it makes us more comfortable. We all want the revolution. How is it going to change? By God being at work within us and God being at work through us. Psalmist in Psalm 46 says this, Be still and know that I am God, and I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And this is an invitation for you and me that are dreaming of the revolution, maybe not the same as Lenin's, but you know, we know that he's right. We need things to change. How is that going to take place? Like Jonah, it's going to stop and think about who God is as he's revealed himself and what God has done and be renewed in the relationship that he offers you through the gospel of Jesus Christ and then uses you wherever it is that he will. Stop and think about God. Recognize it's the power of God at work in you and through you, not through your activism. And God says, if that happens, the effect will be people, the nations, they'll worship me. They will live, they'll honor me. They will, that's the revolution you want. That's the revolution that God has promised. And our part is to be faithful, to pray and to be transformed. Father, be at work in us, we pray. Renew our minds, our hearts, and our lives that we might be the agents that you use both in this town and throughout the world. This is your plan. It makes us uncomfortable at times, but we also find our joy as we walk in the ways that you have designed for us. So Lord, bless us, we pray to be the blessing that you've called us and created us to be. To your glory, until all nations praise your name. We pray in Christ. Amen.